listening to you. First Chronicles chapter 16 this evening. And if you're with us and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now and they have Bibles. And if you just get their attention, they'll get a Bible into your hands this evening and you can follow along with us as we're studying it together. Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, we pick things up in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. David has, along with the entire nation of Israel and everyone in Jerusalem, excitedly they have been successful in their second attempt to bring the Ark of the Covenant into the new capital of Israel, uh, the city of Jerusalem. And uh, so God is the God of second chances. And as we've said before, uh, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. Uh, never is that more true than of a Christian who is endeavoring to do what it is that uh, God is calling them to do. So they learned from their mistake, did it right, and God allowed them to be successful in bringing that Ark of the Covenant, representing the presence of God into the center of their national life. We pick things up in verse 7, where on that day we're told that David first delivered this psalm into the hand of Asaph and his brethren to thank the Lord. And so we have a psalm here now in verse 16 that was written by David, uh, compiled by him and given then to a man by the name of Asaph to put to music. And uh, so that uh, what was in David's heart as a part of this celebration could then become a praise song or a worship song for the nation of Israel as a whole and so that they could worship as well. I was just, you know, uh, talking with my wife this morning and we had uh, the radio station here, um, 106.9, on as we do on the Sunday mornings as we're getting ready to head over here. And there was an older worship song that was on. And, you know, just thinking about, I think about, in the mm, 30 years, almost 31 years that I've walked with the Lord, how many worship songs I've learned. I mean, so many old ones, so many new ones, so many in between, all of them sewn into my heart. And, and when we worship the Lord, as we've done tonight, and sometimes certain songs resonate with us where we are spiritually a little bit more than others, but... I'll tell you, I praise the Lord for men and women that God has called and given a gift to to write worship songs. And it's funny how he does that all around the world. He's touching them and and he puts something on their heart, a theme. He gives them the words. Then there's some Asaph now to put it to music. And then here all the way over in Modesto, some of these songs that we've been learning recently. I think the group is called KLM. It sounds like an airline, but it it isn't. And they're out of Bradford, England. And uh, just Bradford, England is one very tough place. And uh, you've got to be tough to walk with the Lord in that place. And God has given them this great CD and the music that is on there. And so all the way from uh, three or four or five younger men and women in Bradford here in Modesto, California, were singing those worship songs to the Lord. And so it goes on all the way all over around the world because David knew what any musician or songwriter knows, and that is not all of us can write. We can't write lyrics. We can't write music. But we have a longing to say certain things to the Lord in song. And it's one of the ways that we remember the Scriptures is when they're put to song or remember great things about God. They're put to song. And then we just find ourselves driving in the shower is always a great place for singing. And these songs just from nowhere come into our mind and we're singing them. And when I find myself singing a song, and I say, why am I singing that song? You know, some something of the Lord. And I begin to think about what I'm singing because um, I, maybe the Lord's wanting me to remember this aspect about him. And so the importance of worship and the, the beauty, how much it was important to David. But then 
in the bigness of his heart, he realized, hey, this is all going inside of me. God has given me a gift to write these things down. This is all happening between me and God. But I know they feel the same thing and they want to sing the same things to God. And so this is how the song comes together. And the purpose of the psalm here, we're told, was to thank the Lord. And so he begins, oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the people. Sing to him. Sing psalms to him. Talk of his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. And let the hearts of those rejoice who seek the Lord. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his face forevermore. Remember his marvelous works which he has done. His wonders and the judgments of his mouth. O seed of Israel, uh, his servant, you children of Jacob, you... uh, O seed of Israel, his servant, you children of Jacob, his chosen ones. And so here is this call to worship uh, the Lord, his greatness and and his beauty and how good he's been to us. And then to actually take as we recognize what God has done in our lives and among his his people and his great works among his people continue on to today that those things aren't to stay locked inside of us, but they are to find expression. And I want to encourage anyone that comes to this church or any church, if you come and during the worship part, the worship and song part of the service, you're looking at the bulletin or you're reading your Bible and your mouth is not opening, it never opens, and you never sing praise to the Lord, you are missing an important dynamic In your Christian life, you say, I don't sing well. You think I sing well? (laughs) That's one of the reasons some people think the sound is up too loud in here, and we try to be careful of that. But I say, keep it up loud enough that when somebody is singing right behind someone else, they won't stop singing because they're afraid that they'll throw the whole row off with their voice. But there is we have a need to sing these things to the Lord. And then even more importantly, God has a right to hear these things from us. He, he has done great things for us. And he has a right to hear our praise, to hear our thanksgiving being directed to him. So I'm not really rebuking you or saying, oh, he was watching me from the back. Maybe. But I wasn't judging you. But I just want you to consider that the worship isn't just for you. The worship, though it does something important in us, the worship is supremely for him. And you see all these calls to sing, talk, make it, verbalize it out to the Lord. He is worthy of that. And so uh, and, and it's interesting that this particular psalm in First Chronicles chapter 16, it was not lo- it, it isn't recorded in the earlier uh, portions of the historical books. This is like a psalm that's included to minister to this post-exilic group of Jews that have come out of the Babylonian captivity and returned uh, to uh, uh, to Israel now. And David is just reminding them, uh, or God, and in including this in in the this record of their history for them of how great their God is and how wonderful he is and the importance of praising him. Remember, they were in a difficult circumstance and in a very small group of people surrounded by a lot of foreigners. And here's this great encouragement and the greatness of God. And then David wrote, he is the Lord, our God, his judgments are in all of the earth. Remember his covenant forever. So the importance of remembering the Lord, the word which he commanded for a thousand generations. In other words, God's faithful to his covenant and to his promises forever and ever. The covenant which he made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac confirmed it to Jacob for a statute, to Israel for an everlasting covenant, saying, To you I will give the land of Canaan as an allotment of your inheritance. When you were few in number, indeed very few in strangers in it. And we remember when Abraham came to the promised land of Israel, God said, It's yours. Look north, south, east, west. That's all yours. He looks and says, Well, 
I see my family such as it is, a wife and some servants, and I see I've got a lot of cattle and a lot of sheep and a lot of this, but, uh, you know, it, it took some faith to realize that that land had been given to him. And so here he is surrounded by all kinds of pagan nations and all, and God says, I've given it to you. You're, you and your descendants are going to have this land. And as, as improbable as it seemed, that's exactly what happened. Now you put yourself in the place of those returning Jews from the Babylonian exile and the difficulty that they were facing and looking at the promises that God had given to the patriarchs and how improbable they seem. This is never going to come to pass. We have failed. Uh, the whole thing is that, uh, uh, you know, we have failed so thoroughly that these promises don't apply to us anymore and, and all. And yet he reminds them of their history that even there have been times where you've been even fewer in number in the land and I made you great there. And so they were to have faith that those promises were still going to come to pass for them. And so when they went, speaking of uh, that early uh, number of, of Jews under Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they went from one nation to another, from one kingdom to another people, he permitted no man to do them wrong. Yes, he rebuked kings for their sakes, saying, do not touch my anointed ones and do my prophets no harm. So great encouragement to their faith, to our faith of, of the fact that no matter how unlikely the fulfillment of some promise of God's word might seem to us at the moment, they will all be fulfilled. God's reputation is wrapped up in us in this world and his faithfulness to his word. If he fails in a single promise in a single one of his children, then he is not trustworthy. Indeed, he'd be a liar. And so he is going to be true to all of his promises in our lives. It can look iffy for a little bit, but his word will have the final say. He goes on to say, sing to the Lord all the earth. Proclaim the good news of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his wonders among all people. Speaking of the Gentile uh, nations. For the Lord is great and he's greatly to be praised. He is also to be feared among all gods. For all of the gods of the Gentile peoples, they're idols. They're just man-made things. But the Lord made the heavens Honor and majesty are before him. Strength and gladness are in his place. Give to the Lord, O families of the earth. Give to the Lord glory and strength. Give to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. O worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. One of my favorite phrases in all of the Bible. Not just because I hit it tonight. I love that phrase that speaks of the beauty of holiness. The holy life is a beautiful life because it's a Christ-like life. The word holy means to be set apart unto God for his purposes and his use. And to be holy, to be set apart, means I have to be set apart from something, what is common, what is unclean, and separated unto someone else, which is the Lord and, and his holiness. And that's what holiness is. It's important for us to always remember that every definition of holiness needs to be run through the life of Jesus. Because no one ever lived a more holy life than Jesus lived. As a, recently, a, um, uh, somebody left the church uh, some time ago. And uh, that's not unusual. <laughs> I won't cry in front of you. But, but in all seriousness, that isn't unusual. But she left because she didn't feel that um, some of us, I don't know if it was you or it was me, we weren't um, dressing up on Sundays uh, well enough to honor the Lord. So I look at that and I think to myself, all right, I understand that perspective. I understand where it comes from. But that's a man-made definition of holiness. What did Jesus look like? Did Jesus ever rebuke people for 
their dress and what was the best they had in the closet or what was the most comfortable for them or all when they came to listen to him teach. He never did that. And so you just look and say, what did Jesus wear? What's an issue to Jesus? And of course, that's not important at all. You go all around the world. Some people have only one set of clothes. That's what they wear all the time. So they can't go to church because they don't they can't dress up one day out of the week. I think you can cross a line and, and, and it can be disrespectful. But we can't get these ideas of what we think is, is holiness that have nothing to do with true holiness, nothing to do with Christ. And we could go on and give multiple examples of that kind of, of a thing. The thing to me, and one of the reasons I love this phrase, the beauty of holiness, is because I came to walk to really know the Lord and walk with him at the age of 25. So I knew, you know, nobody's going to make a movie about me or anything. But I knew what it was to be unholy for a time in my life. And I know what it is to be holy on some level in growing in it. And I'll tell you, you can't compare the one life to the other life. The holy life is a beautiful, beautiful beautiful, freeing, liberating life. The reason I mentioned that a little bit tonight is there's been this um, kind of vibe in a section of the body of Christ, especially among younger people, for about three to five years. And I try to keep my nose out of that kind of stuff because it makes me angry sometimes what people come up with and the try and thing they try and bring people under. And so sometimes I think about the line in the old Steely Dan song, the things that pass for knowledge I don't understand. There's a lot I don't understand these days. But this whole idea that a Christian living a holy life is never going to reach the ungodly culture or that by living a holy life we are being self-righteous. There's a world of difference between being self-righteous and being obedient to God's word. Self-righteousness is when I come up with my own man-made ideas of holiness that have no basis in the scriptures. They, They have no foundation in Christ's life. But to take and call Christians who are endeavoring to be obedient to the fullness of God's revelation here and to live a life like Christ and to call us self-righteous and to say that we will never reach the darkness of this culture by making a strong stand concerning right and wrong, good and bad. These are the definitions of what is right and wrong in these areas based upon the scriptures. The idea that this unnecessarily alienates the culture and that we're doing more harm than good. And I wouldn't say anything about it if that was the message of the world to us, because I'm not going to expect another message. What troubles me is that there are people who call themselves Christians who are now saying this to other Christians and making Christians who are really obedient to the word of God, related to what they think, what they do, uh, what they put into their minds, into their eyes, into their ears, what comes out of their mouth. They put it to the standard of the word of God and they allow the word of God to make that decision. And increasingly, those that call themselves Christians are making us feel like we are the ones who are wrong and we're the ones that need to back off because we're doing more damage than good. And I look at myself and I think to myself, all right, well, let's put this to the test. I look at the life and the ministry of Jesus. Do you know what the first word out of his mouth in his public ministry was? Repent. How well did that, how did he just make the cover of Hipster Magazine? Was that, was that, was that a concern for him? He called people to repent because he loved them enough to call them to repent, to come out of darkness and to come into light. And so I just want to say, don't be bullied by this nonsense and don't be badgered by this nonsense. I'll tell you where the life of regret is. And I cannot in my mind, I can't find it in the scriptures. Well, I won't go there. Um, I'll tell you where the life of regret is. The life of regret is if the Lord tarries and he gives us enough years. 
to live out our three score and ten, whatever it is. And hospice gets called in. And we've got 48 hours to live. And all they've got is one sheet over the top of us and one sheet under us. And I'll tell you, no Christian at that point in time will ever regret having lived an obedient life to the Lord. The only longing in our heart would be to have five more lives to live even more obediently to his word than to live some pagan nonsense that the Lord has delivered us out. That blood that we sang about here tonight chokes me up a little bit. That blood was not just shed for the forgiveness of our sins, but that life was laid down in order to give us the opportunity to live a different kind of life in this world. So that other people who were once in our sin-filled condition could look at our lives and say, there's hope for me. What worked for him, what worked for her, that God that could make that change in their life, maybe he could make that change in my life. And the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the world today is to convict people of sin and to draw them to Christ. That's how we cooperate with the Holy Spirit, by giving him our obedience to work with. And where the Holy Spirit is active in a true seeker after God and after truth, he will, that man or woman will never be put off by a holy life or a Christ-like life. They will be drawn to that kind of life because in the depth of their sin, their emptiness, their loneliness, their frustration, they are looking for something different. They're looking for another way, a true way, not just words, but a changed life. And so the Holy Spirit, we don't we don't have to worry about what the world thinks of this, what the world thinks of that, how popular we are, unpopular we are. It is sufficient for us to know that as we obey God's word, we are giving, we are allowing the Holy Spirit to work in people's lives. And so that those that are looking for a change can look at our lives and know where that change can occur. And I would rather have the entire world poo-poo me on whatever kind of level, accuse me of whatever they want to accuse me of. As long as I can live day in and day out, knowing that whatever does or doesn't come out of my mouth, my life is such that for a person who has really reached the end of their rope and they want to know about God and they want to change, that they can see that in my life. It is its own reward. Holiness is a beautiful thing because it's a Christ-like thing. And so don't be badgered away from your biblical standard of right and wrong in your home and in your marriage and in your contact with the world and the rest of the body of Christ. You're the one that if you're in that place, we say, I am living an obedient life. And I don't need to tell you, if you do that, you will pay a price relationally for that related to other Christians or those who say that they are. But. You're called by God to stand, and I'm called by God to stand and live this life by the grace of God in its fullness that he has called us to, to give hope to others who are today where we once were. Somebody else lived it for us to see so we could know to escape and enter into the beauty of holiness. Oh, worship the Lord and the beauty of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. The world also is firmly established. It shall not be moved. Let the heavens rejoice and let the earth be glad and let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Let the sea roar with all of its fullness. Let the field rejoice and all that is in it. Then the trees of the woods shall rejoice before the Lord, for he is coming to judge the earth. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for, that's a reason word, he is good for, that's a reason word, his mercy endures forever. And say, save us, O God of our salvation, gather us together and deliver us from the Gentiles to give thanks to the, your holy name, to triumph in your praise. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. 
And all of the people said, Amen, which means so be it or that's the truth. So David had a hit on his hand. They listened, they heard the psalm and they said, that's it. That's exactly what our heart wants to say to God. And uh, thank you, David, and thank you, Asaph. And they praised the Lord. And so he left Asaph, uh, the musician. Asaph also wrote many of the psalms as we uh, get there. Uh, someday. And so he left Asaph and his brothers there before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to minister before the Ark regularly as every day's work required. So Asaph and his uh, brothers were left in Jerusalem at the new tent that David had erected for the Ark that had just been transported there. And again, their responsibility was to make sure that praise and worship was being offered up to the Lord whenever people would be coming to worship, that they would enter into that kind of an experience with God. And again, they couldn't put on a a CD or something like that or plug the iPod in to make that happen. That had to be done by uh, real people doing it in those days. And so that was part of their responsibility. And Obed-Edom, with his 68 brethren, uh, including Obed-Edom, the son of uh, uh, Jedaphon and uh, Hosha, to be gatekeepers, and Zadok, the priest, and his brethren, the priests, before the tabernacle of the Lord uh, at the high place, which was at Gibeon, to offer burnt offerings to the Lord on the altar of burnt offering. Uh, regularly morning and evening and to do according to all that is written in the law of the Lord, which he commanded Israel. So at this point in time in Israel's history, uh, somewhat interesting, the Ark of the Covenant is now in Jerusalem. But the, the tabernacle and all of the other furnishings, the altar and, and uh, of incense, the other altars, all of this, that was in a city called Gibeon. And so David keeps Asaph and he keeps his brothers, he keeps Obed-Edom and some of his brothers to minister at the tent, the tabernacle kind of of meeting of God there in Jerusalem at that time. But he also makes sure that priests are also dispatched to Gibeon there where the official tent is and to make sure that that worship of the Lord according to the law of Moses is continuing. So at this point in time, there were kind of two places to worship the Lord, one in Gibeon, one in Jerusalem. That's going to change very, very shortly when Solomon, David's son, builds the uh, temple. And we'll see not this week, but perhaps next week, if the Lord tarries, how God reveals to David that the, Ark of the, the, that the temple was to be built there in Jerusalem. And that would become the place that he would honor uh, people coming to meet with him. And so the two places would then again merge as one, but no longer at Gibeon in a tent, but in Jerusalem at the temple. And with them, uh, verse 41, uh, Heman and Jedathan and the rest of those who were chosen, who were designated by name to give thanks to the Lord because his mercy endures forever. And with them, Haman and Jedathan to sound aloud with trumpets and cymbals and the musical instruments of God. Now the sons of Jedathan were gatekeepers. And so these men were uh, designated to uh, keep the, uh, the the music going and that worship experience and also the keeping of the gates related to the tabernacle there at uh, Gibeon. And then all of the people departed following this great day of bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Israel, every man to his house, and David returned to his home. Now it came to pass when David was dwelling in his house that David said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar. But the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord is under tent curtains. So David now has rest from uh, most of his enemies. Uh, the kingdom, uh, Israel is no longer a northern and a southern kingdom. It's been united into one nation. Jerusalem is now the capital of Israel. Uh, David is uh, no longer fleeing for his life. He's been made the king of, of Israel. And as a result of becoming the new king, a palace was built for him, uh, not on the backs of the people, but the king of Lebanon said, let me send down the stone, let me send the cedars, let me send the workmen to build you a palace. It was a goodwill gesture to kind of diplomatically unite the nations 
together. And so this palace was built for David. And so David is in his palace. It's paneled by cedar. I don't know what the equivalent of it would be uh, today, uh, but it it was a big deal to have cedar on your walls 3,000 years ago. And so David is in the middle of this, no longer living in caves, fleeing Saul out in the wilderness. Life is good. Life is peaceful. He's blessed. He has more than he ever dreamed of of having. And as he looks at this palace that he's living in, and then he looks at this tent that the Ark of the Covenant is in, the disparity between the two is just too much for him. It's the inconsistency of it. So he thinks to himself, listen, why should I live in this kind of beauty? And I don't deserve it. It's all God's doing. And then here is what represents the Lord and the Ark of the Covenant. It's out in this simple tent. And so his idea was, let's build a a formal house uh, and temple for the Lord. And then Nathan said to David, do all that is in your heart, for God is with you. So Nathan, the prophet, one of the counselors of David, he just he just heard David's heart, David's love for the Lord and this plan. And he just thinks, well, what? There's no need to pray about that. It's all about God. It's all about honoring God. And so, David, uh, here's the go ahead from God. Go ahead and do whatever it is that you're thinking about here. And God is with you. And then notice in verse three. But it happened that night that the word of God came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, You shall not build me a house to dwell in. And so the Lord uh, wakes Nathan up in the middle of the night and, uh, and uh, speaks to him all of this. And, and it's interesting that as uh, this plan that David had laid out, I mean, Nathan looked at it and thought, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, this is going to bless God. And and yet uh, God takes and when he hears this and he hears Nathan giving the David the OK, uh, the Lord steps in and essentially says, no, thank you. Um, I don't want that. And so Nathan thinks there's nothing to object to here. And God steps in and he uh, he declared that that he wasn't interested uh, in David's plan, but he had a different plan of his own. Now, I don't know how you feel about people making mistakes in the Bible. I happen to love it. And if they were all perfect, so oh no, where am I in my devotional life this morning? I'll be reading about ten more perfect people, but they're not perfect. Nobody's perfect. And so here is Nathan. I mean, here's this guy, he hears God, 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 and he fumbles here on this. Because he just kind of reverts to, this is obvious, there's no need to pray. And so, what could anybody complain about here, and why wouldn't God like uh, this? And so, but the Lord steps in and, and says, nope. I, you're wrong on this, Nathan. You spoke for me, and, 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 it was, and what I want here is actually the opposite of what it is that, that you have said to him. And I'm refreshed that the revelation of uh, it refreshes me and blesses me that the revelation of God's will came to Nathan by degrees. You didn't get it right the first time. You believe God allows U-turns and decision-making? I believe it because I've made plenty of U-turns. And so here is, here is Nathan. He makes this step. And one of the things that but, but God corrects him and gives him his mind. One of the things that's very reassuring to me in, in seeking God's will, because I seek God's will as it relates to my own life, and then so many decisions are made in this church that affect so many other people. And, and so we seek the Lord. We're very serious about seeking the Lord and praying and getting the mind of Christ on decisions. And um, we seek the Lord and ask him for his wisdom with the confidence that he wants us to be in his will even more than we want to be in his will. And we want to be in his will badly. We don't want any other will but his will. And that's the confidence that we should have when we seek the Lord for wisdom. Said, Lord, is the recognition that if I in in earnest, if I miss it, God will raise the volume. You ever had God raise the volume of his voice to get our attention? 
And sometimes I pray, Lord, just do whatever you have to do. Make your voice loud enough so it, it, it's bigger than all of the surrounding circumstances in their life or in my life so that I hear you above all that noise so I can understand your will. And God is faithful to do that. And Nathan, to his credit, he, he realizes, okay, I've missed it here, but now I've got, you know, what it is that God wants to have done here. And uh, so he goes forth with that. And it's and the fact that God allows you turns is not just a, a you know, Old Testament uh, kind of idea, New Testament in Acts chapter 16 there. The Apostle Paul was attempting to continue his first missionary journey into what was the Roman province of Asia, and he found his way blocked by the Lord. He's determined. This is a guy that knows how to get on with things. And so he's trying to get into uh, Asia. The Lord is blocking him because he has other plans. And so he then traveled west to Troas. And in Troas, the Lord gave him clear revelation uh, from the Lord to travel then to Macedonia. That's how he wanted that missionary journey to go. And so sometimes you just, we're just walking along in our walk with the Lord. A decision gets made, and then it just doesn't sit right. doesn't sit right at breakfast. doesn't sit right at lunch. You take some Pepto-Bismol. It still doesn't sit right. It doesn't sit right at dinner. It's just not, and God just won't let it sit right until it gets made right. And say, Lord, this thing, isn't, this thing isn't clicking. The peace of God isn't ruling in my heart here. What are you up to here? And we recite, seek him, and then he gives us clear direction. I remember one time, many, many years ago, I tried to use old illustrations. Um, I'm talking about somebody in the body. But I remember one time a man came and, and, um, uh, to the church, and he, uh, he had left another church uh, very unhappy with the pastor. And uh, the pastor had made a couple of wrong decisions. And this man was just... Uh, flabbergasted. How, how can I trust this man to lead and, and to hear God if he makes mistakes? And I remember him sharing what the mistakes were. And I thought, wow, <laughs> you know, uh, those are pretty easy for people to make. And so uh, he's laying this whole thing out. And I just said to him, I said, if that's the standard that you have related to a pastor, which is essentially perfection, I will save you the trip of staying here for any length of time. You're still looking for another church than here. And we were uh, friends and and have continued to be friends on that. But the standard was just too high. People miss it. We miss it sometimes. But the big thing is, is our heart soft toward the Lord. If it is toward the Lord, he's going to get our attention. He's going to get us back on track. And that's whether it's a husband or a wife or whether it's a mother or a father or whoever whatever the relationship uh, might be. And so the Lord speaks and he says, no, I'm going to uh, decline uh, that uh, offer. And then the uh, the Lord went on to say in verse 5, for I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought up Israel even to this day, but have gone from tent to tent and from one tabernacle to another. God says, I'm happy with tents. Boy, there goes the whole economy. So he's obviously he's not a materialistic. I've been just happy with these tents. And when they wear out, they make another one. And it's, I'm good with this. And wherever I have moved about with all Israel, have I ever spoken a word to any of the judges of Israel who I'm commanded to shepherd my people saying, hey, what about what's with this crummy tent? How come I don't have a house of cedar? Never asked for a house of cedar. But now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you, speaking of his past, from the sheepfold and from following the sheep. In that culture, you couldn't get any lower than that. Now, don't shout out what is the lowest job in your mind in this culture. That's what uh, looking after sheep was in that culture. And God reminds David of his path. I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be a ruler over my people Israel. I'll tell you, I'm not in David's shoes in terms of going from there to there to be a king. But I feel every bit of that verse in my life. And I know you do too. You're still in awe of what he brought you out of and the lowliness of that. 
into the life that he's brought us into as Christians, the beauty of it, the magnificence of it. The life that I have as a Christian, I wouldn't trade not for one day to be the king of Israel instead of David. This is far superior. That was David's calling. That was David's job. That was, but that covenant and this covenant, two entirely different things. And so he reminds him of how good he, that the Lord had been to him. And then I have been with you, speaking present tense, wherever you have gone. And I have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I've made you a name like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Look what I've made you into, David. And moreover, I will, speaking of the future, appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them and they sh- that they may dwell in a place of of their own and move no more, nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously, since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, also I will subdue all your enemies. And so the Lord says, I've been real happy with the tent. I don't need big edifices and fancy buildings or anything like that. But he God is saying, I do recognize that the tent worked best At this part of Israel's history, because you didn't have a land, you didn't have a capital, you're moving all over the world and and you're a wandering pilgrim people. But now that you're settled, uh, I, I will absolutely entertain the thought of a temple. And yes, it is in in my will. And then the Lord speaks to David. Furthermore, I tell you that the Lord will build you a house. And so the Lord speaks to David here and uh, declares to David that he is going to build him uh, a house. David wasn't allowed to build the temple. And uh, one of the reasons that he wasn't allowed to build the temple that recorded elsewhere in the scriptures is because he had fought so many wars. They were righteous wars, uh, but there was a lot of blood on his hands. And the Lord said, I don't want my temple to be associated with blood and with warfare. So your son is going to build this. David understood all of that, didn't have a problem with that uh, at all. And so this was the the way that it was was going to um, the the way that it was going to be. It was going to be built not by him, but by uh, his son. And furthermore, again, verse 10, I tell you that. The Lord will build you a house. It shall be when your days are fulfilled. When you must go to be with your fathers that I will set up your seed after you who will be of your sons and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build me a house and I will establish his throne forever. Speaking of Solomon and I will be his father and he shall be my son. I will not take my mercy away from him as I took it away from him who was before you, Saul, even though Solomon uh, actually probably warranted it. But God didn't do it for David's sake. And then the Lord said, I will establish him in my house. And in my kingdom forever and his throne shall be established forever. And so David here, when God speaks at the end of verse uh, 10 and declares to David that he will build David a house, the word house uh, means dynasty. It speaks of something lasting, a house as opposed to a tent. And so the the uh, provisions of this covenant that's known as the Davidic uh, covenant include David, verse 11, is going to have a child who wasn't born yet, uh, who would succeed him and establish his kingdom. This son, who we know to be Solomon, uh, verse 12, is going to build the temple instead of David. The throne of his kingdom, verse 12, is going to be established forever. And then in verse 13, the throne will not be taken away from Solomon again, even though his sins justified that kind of a chastisement. And then verse 14, David's house or his dynasty shall be established forever. And what God was communicating to David here, and, and it can be a little bit of demanding to follow it, but it is important to understand it. God was uh, communicating to David that a descendant uh, of David would establish an eternal kingdom and exercise an endless rule. And this covenant is mentioned several other places in the scriptures. For instance, Isaiah chapter nine, 
Jeremiah chapter 23, Jeremiah 33, Ezekiel 37, Zechariah chapter 14, and that this kingdom, this dynasty of David, will find its complete fulfillment in the return of the Lord Jesus at his second coming, uh, to whom belong the throne and the kingdom forever. And David correctly understood uh, all of this that God was speaking him to mean that God was promising to bring the promised Messiah into the world through his bloodline or through his uh, lineage. And so when the Lord spoke to him, your throne shall be established forever, it refers to the Messiah who would be of the house of David and whose reign uh, will last forever. And so this uh, understanding of this promise by David, uh, God gives his stamp of approval to that understanding in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter uh, 6, uh, we're told, For uh, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, speaking of the Messiah. And the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will permit, will perform this. In the New Testament, in Luke chapter 1, concerning the birth of Jesus, uh, all of this is affirmed by the Holy Spirit. We're told in the sixth month of the, uh, sixth month of the uh, pregnancy of Mary, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when he saw him, she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. And then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. One final verse in this vein. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. And so when you read the Gospels, and Jesus is declared to be by the people the son of David repeatedly, the son of David, the son of David, the son of David, that was the recognition by the people that this was the promised Messiah at, 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 uh, Come to come into the world through the lineage of David. And so the Messiah had to be born of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then also be born of Judah, and then also be born of David, just as Jesus uh, was. And so the promise was given to uh, David here, and he's just undone by this promise. I mean, here he is. He's the king. He's just life is just could not be any better on a, on a material kind of way than it was. But David was not about material things. He was all about God, God's work, his relationship with God. He's a very deeply spiritual man. And so he could take or leave all of this other stuff and paneling of cedar and all of this. This promise of God, that God had chosen him to, to be of the bloodline, that the Messiah would come into the world through, this left him undone. He went in probably to the tabernacle where the Ark of the Covenant was, and he just sat before the Lord. You know, you can do that anywhere in the world. You can do that in your backyard. You can do it in a park. Just plop down someplace. And he said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? 
And yet this was a small thing in your sight, O God, and you have also spoken, not only made me what I am today, but more importantly, you have spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come and have regarded me according to the rank of a man of high degree, O Lord God. I mean, he just remembers where he came from and the promises that God had given to him. And I, I again, I, I think we can feel it in our own uh, lives. The, the biggest dream for the Jews in the Old Testament was that the Messiah would come into the world through their bloodline. That's why they were so careful about their genealogies. Again, I don't begrudge them any of the things that they looked ahead to under that old covenant. But I wouldn't trade what I have today. The bloodline that I'm a part of today in this covenant in Jesus' blood, to be adopted into his family, to have what we have spiritually in, in the Lord today as Christians, David could only dream about. And so the blessings that we have, when we think about tonight, and don't go too far back, but when you just even think for a flash where we once were in life, what he's made us into, what he has blessed us with, I mean, we can feel all the same things that David feels here. He's just undone. How do you thank the Lord enough? How do you praise him enough for the kind of promises that we have and the kind of God that he is? Oh, Lord, for your servant's sake and according to your own heart, you have done all this greatness and making known all these great things. Oh, Lord, there is none like you, nor is there any God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people, Israel, the one nation in the earth whom God went to redeem for himself as a people, to make for yourself a name by great and awesome deeds, by driving out nations from before your people whom you redeemed from Egypt. For you have made your people, Israel, your very own people forever, and you, Lord, have become their God. And now, O Lord, the word which you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, let it be established forever, as you have said. Take any promise of the Bible and glom onto it in that same way. Lord, I don't deserve this. I can't believe this promise in the book of Philippians that you have given to me. But I hold on to it and I say, let it be established. And so let it be established that your name may be magnified forever, saying the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, is Israel's God. And let the house of your servant David be established before you. For you, O oh my God, have revealed to your servant that you will build him a house, a dynasty. And therefore, your servant has found it in his heart to pray before you. And now, Lord, you are God and have promised this goodness to your servant uh, when you get excited and you get humbled, you repeat yourself because you don't have that many languages to say the same thing in. And so David's just saying thank you over and over again every way that he can. This, uh, this, there's nothing new under the sun. We all recognize this from our own lives. And now you have been pleased to bless the house of your servant that it may continue before you forever. For you have blessed it. O oh Lord, and it shall be blessed forever. That was his confidence in the promise of God. You promised it. It's going to take place. It's a beautiful confidence to have in all of the promises that fill the book. If the men will come forward to serve communion tonight, and the worship team will come forward.